I'll just uh, briefly introduce uh, three guests. I'm, I'm sure you probably already know them, but um, uh, starting uh, with Land, who's closest to me, Land Pritchett, you, uh, some of you would have heard from Land yesterday. He's currently based at Oxford University, uh, but before that he was at Harvard uh, Kennedy School and, uh, of course, a long time at the World Bank and famous for his writings on any number of issues, and we've been putting into work since we had him at the conference. And then uh, next to land is Jocelyn Bury. Uh, Jocelyn is currently in charge of evaluations at the Green Climate Fund in Seoul. Uh, before that, uh, at the 3IE in Delhi, the International Initiative Impact Evaluation. And then uh, furthest away, but need no introduction, uh, is Andrew Lee, who is our local Member of Parliament, and um, also formerly Professor of Economics uh, here at the ANU and uh, remarkably prolific author as well as marathon. <laughs> uh, I'll just uh, explain to you the, the structure of the event. It's quite um, sort of highly structured and I've uh, tried to cast it as in between a debate and a discussion. So I'm going to uh, ask each of our three uh, panellists a general question and then ask them to make an opening statement in response and they've got 10 minutes for that. And we're going to be very strict with uh, timekeeping on uh, their, those interventions. And uh, the panelists are welcome to come here or speak from the table. It's up to you. Uh, and then uh, we're going to go through, starting with Andrew, then Lan, then Joe. And then I'm going to give them another second chance to kind of give any rebuttals or reflections. That's five minutes each. Then we're going to open it up for a Q&A session. And then we can have the wrap-up, a final closing statement, no more than five minutes each. So that's the uh, plan of attack. And uh, I think most people are settled. So it'd be a good time to make a, a start. I just need to check with uh, Liz, is she around? I think she's still getting chairs. She's our timekeeper. But until she arrives, I will take on the job of being timekeeper. Mm. Um, all right, let's get going. So, Andrew, you've written a book called mm. Random Misses, How Radical Research Has Changed Our World. And you've said in promotion of that book, across medicine, business and government, there's no simple or more powerful tool for finding out what works than a randomised experiment. Investigating everything from jails to ad campaigns, philanthropy to schools, the random misses are building evidence and busting myths. So, Andrew, tell us about RCTs and why you're such a big fan of them. Please welcome Andrew Lee. Thanks, Stephen, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, you may be able to hear the hail coming down outside. It's been uh, uh, forecast for a little while now, which means that the underground car park in which I just put my car has about the sort of ratio of uh, bodies to space as this room <laughs> uh, it's, it's a real pleasure and honour to be speaking on the same panel as, uh, as Jojo and, and Lamp, uh, two superstars in the field, and speaking about what I think is uh, one of the critically uh, important and interesting questions uh, in development economics. Malaria is one of the leading killers in the world. Uh, spread by the Amelophilus mosquito, it claims a child's life on average every two minutes. But at the start of this century, there was a significant debate over the best way of distributing bed nets. Uh, some people said that if you handed out bed nets free, then the take-up would be great. You'd have the power of free, 
uh, people would, uh, would pick them up for nothing uh, and be more likely to use them. But others said, no, you should distribute them on a subsidised basis. When people pay for something, they see they value it a little more. People who've put a few dollars into a bed net are more likely to use it uh, as a bed net. Uh, those who haven't paid for it uh, may well simply use it as a fishing net. Uh, the World Health Organisation was swayed by the subsidising argument, and so from 2000 to 2005, uh, their approach to distributing bed nets uh, was based on requiring subsidies. But the thing was, economic theory couldn't really answer that question. Uh, it could, we couldn't be clear uh, which of these two pretty convincing theories would work. And so, uh, over, the, uh, over the course of the next few years, uh, a series of randomised trials were conducted in sub-Saharan African countries, uh, in which bed nets were distributed free or at subsidised subsidized prices. Uh, the results were pretty unequivocal and consistent across the states. As you raise the price of a bed net from a mere nothing to 60 cents, take-up fell by two-thirds. People who received free bed, who had the opportunity of getting free bed nets, were more likely to take them than if they had to pay for them. And children were more likely to sleep under bed nets uh, when they were distributed free. As a result of this study and others like it, uh, the share of sub-Saharan African children who are now sleeping under bed nets is around two thirds, compared with just one in 50 uh, in the year 2000. The randomised revolution, as anyone who follows the literature uh, had, would know, uh, has been a massive change in the way in which development economics is practised. Uh, in the 1990s, there was uh, less than 30 randomised evaluations in development economics published each year. Uh, now, there are hundreds. Uh, many in the room will have uh, read them, written, uh, re written about them, uh, participated in them. And those randomised trials are throwing up surprising findings. David McKenzie's evaluation of UWIN, uh, the Nigerian cash program for entrepreneurs, uh, looked at whether or not providing a $64,000 uh, grant to budding entrepreneurs would allow them to grow their businesses. Uh, think of this as a paint entrepreneur who's selling paint out of the back of her car. As a result of receiving a grant, she's able to hire staff, get a showroom, uh, and build up a larger industry. The randomised trial that uh, David and his co-authors conducted uh, found that UWIN uh, was one of the most effective job creation programs per dollar that Nigeria had, had explored. Uh, it was creating jobs uh, at the order of $8,500 a job, well ahead of other, other similar programs. Randomised trials also have suggested that sometimes our favourite findings might have weaknesses. After Mohammed Yunus's uh, Nobel Prize and uh, Bill Clinton's celebration of microcredit, uh, the idea began to spread that microcredit uh, could be the secret to world, to world poverty. Uh, it was uh, su suggested that it could be the most important anti-poverty instrument. So a series of researchers uh, carried out uh, randomised trials on microcredit programs in six different countries. The idea was, let's not just have a single site, let's test for replication uh, across multiple sites. And they found no impact of microcredit uh, on household income, on the chance that recipients of microcredit uh, would send their children to school, uh, on women's empowerment. 
Microcredit did improve the sense of financial freedom. Uh, it did cause people to invest more in their businesses. But those businesses didn't turn out to be more profitable. And so that's led to a, a recalibration in the field, uh, a sense of greater modesty about what microcredit can achieve, and something of a shift from the notion that uh, the problem is ability to borrow to the idea that it might be ability to save. Randomised trials aren't perfect, no evaluation technique is, uh, but they have certain, certain advantages. One is that they have a clear counterfactual. If we wanted to know how much people enjoyed this debate, uh, we could survey the people in this room as to their happiness and survey those who chose not to come into their room this room for their happiness. Uh, or, as, you go, as people came to the door, we could simply toss a coin, heads you get to come in, tails you have to go somewhere else, we survey the happiness of the two groups, uh, and if we've got a large enough sample, which I believe we might well have in this case, we could find out whether or not attending this lecture made you more or less happy uh, than the next best alternative. Because of their simplicity, randomised trials have an advantage in being explained to policymakers. I know, I'm a professor turned politician, I spend plenty of time trying to explain research to policymakers, uh, and I can promise you, explaining one of my matching estimator studies uh, is not straightforward for somebody who is in front. But I can explain a randomised methodology uh, to any of my colleagues in the space of 30 seconds. And that means that when we're replicating, we're more likely to be replicating a similar methodology. That what's changing is the context, but not the evaluation strategy. Whereas if I'm doing a matching study in different contexts, I may well be estimating uh, a different methodology as well as a different impact. Randomised trials can be more readily tied back to theory. Because researchers are constructing the field experiments, they can start from the ideas that come forward from economic theory and set about testing those. So, for example, in the case of bed nets, uh, we wanted a series of different price points. If you look for a natural experiment, you may well find some context in which somebody had offered $3 subsidised bed nets and others had offered free bed nets. But if you're setting it up yourself, conducting your own randomised trial, you can carefully vary the price points and look then for whether uh, the, the result carefully steps up. Uh, what you don't want is to find uh, oddly discontinuous results uh, that may suggest that things are askew. But by being able to construct the evaluation context, you can better be sure that you're testing theories. I think of randomised trials as being where numeracy meets modesty. Uh, the recent Nobel laureate uh, Esther Duflo uh, talks about her notion that she has no passion about particular programs, but a passion about a particular way of testing programs. I think to be uh, idealistic about solving problems, but scientific and critical about possible solutions is the best way for research researchers to be. You don't want to be too tied to a particular program that is untested. The randomised debate, in some sense, uh, comes down to that old Archaeolochus distinction between hedgehogs and foxes. You know the one, the hedgehogs know one big thing, the fox knows many things, and the randomisters have tended to be more fox-like than hedgehogs. They've tended to want to uh, test theory after theory to build up from small ideas uh, rather than approach the world saying what development needs is human capital full stop. 
or we must just do infrastructure, full stop, or it's all about institutions, full stop. We need to be careful. Uh, we need to be uh, sure that we're uh, taking into account uh, general equilibrium effects, and so we may be testing something uh, in an environment in which there's potential spillovers. We need to be sure that uh, our research is generalizable. If you run an early childhood program with masters trained uh, teachers, you want to be sure that that's going to be uh, able to be rolled out uh, in the field. And you want to understand nuance. Uh, Carthy Mulleran has a lovely uh, discussion of uh, a series of studies which find no correlation between the distribution of textbooks and students' test scores. And he breaks down one by one why those studies didn't find the result. In Sierra Leone, it's because in the treatment group, the textbooks were put in storage. Uh, in India, it's because parents cut back on their education spending in response to the government spending more on textbooks. In Tanzania, it's because the teachers in general didn't teach the textbooks. And in Kenya, it was because four-fifths of the students in the sample couldn't read. If you're going to generalise across these studies, you do need to make sure that you're looking at the particular nuances. But that's a challenge for any form of evaluation. Any time we're evaluating, uh, we want to be sure uh, that we're not going too far outside the specific context. So thank you very much for being here today. Looking forward very much to the debate and the conversation. Thank you, Andrew, uh, and for sticking to time. So one of the refreshing features of this event is there are no PowerPoints, so I'm going to turn this off. And um, another notable feature is that these are three experts on the subject. I mean, that's true of all our sessions. But um, <laughs> Andrew's, Andrew's written a book about it, uh, Joe spent a whole lot of work on it, and Land, of course, has written an article about it. <laughs> so Land, you've written an article called Randomised develop sorry, randomizing development method or madness. And I take it that your answer is madness. Why? Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm 60 years old. I've been doing nothing but development since I was 24 years old. And in all of those years, I have never seen a fad less concerned about evidence than the fad for evidence. Um, they make, in order to justify RCTs, they will make any claim with any amount of evidence because they're just complete, total fanatics about promoting, uh, like the idea that they're foxes. They're hedgehogs about a method, which is the worst kind of hedgehog. It's like you showed up, the drunk is looking under the spotlight for the keys, not because they lost them there, because they're where there's light, and you say, I have a microscope in my trunk, and I'll help you look, but it requires even more light to focus, so we'll have to reduce the search to just right under the street light. It's made the problem worse. Um, so let me, five things. First, there's nothing new about RCTs. I graduated from MIT in economics in 1988. No one who graduated from economics in 1988 went into the four established organizations in America capable and doing RCTs on social policy. By 1988, there were four organizations in America 
fully equipped to do RCTs and social policy. Not a single methodological innovation has been made on RCTs in the last 20 years. Nothing about the RCT revolution is a revolution. Nothing about the RCT revolution is new. Uh, all of these techniques were well known, well, well established on social policy in America well before any of the current Nobel Prize did a single experimental study. So there's nothing new about RCTs. They were used to evaluate social policy starting in 1968 in America. They're 50 years old. People stopped using them because they weren't very effective. So this revolution is a counter-revolution, not based on the actual experience or evidence of what the RCTs actually had impact on social policy, but based on um, a, a faith-based claim. And let's get to a slightly worse reason in a second. Second, uh, if you ask yourself, <laughs> why are RCTs popular in development? It's because RCTs are a weapon against the weak. If you want to cut something's budget, what you say is, I would love to give you budget for that, but first you have to show me that you're effective. We don't ask that for aircraft carriers. We don't ask that for social transfers to the elderly. We don't ask that for a whole variety. If you look at the government budget in any developed country and say, what, do we, what is there an RCT revolution in? There's an RCT revolution in trying to help poor people in other countries. It's because it's a weapon against the weak. It's a way of stopping doing what you don't want to do. So randomized control trials used as independent impact evaluation are mostly a technique for people who don't want to help the poor to justify why they don't have to help the poor. Um, third, the, before there was any RCTs in development, development was succeeding massively. If you look at the trend of nearly every indicator of human well-being, it was on a massive positive trend well before there was an RCT done in development. So poverty was going down, incomes were going up, number of children in school was going way up, uh, malnutrition was going down, infant mortality was going down. So the idea that the RCT was a necessary or even interesting component in creating success and development is completely, totally not borne out, the, borne out by the timing of the facts that massive progress was being made across the board in development before there were any RCTs. And there's no evidence yet that they've been accelerated by the use of RCTs other than, like, <laughs> the, uh, Andrew has given you the totality of the positive stories about RCTs. <laughs> Uh, the story about malaria is essentially the only story of a positive story uh, making a difference. And there's an important reason for that. The reason is development is about social transformations. It's about the transformation of an economy. It's about the transformation of a polity. It's about the transformation of a society. It's about the transformation of organizations and their capability. None of those are individuated phenomena. Those are general social phenomena. The method is only adapted to evaluating things that can be individuated. And so you have limited yourself to a tool that can't ask any of the important questions in development. So if you look at um, what are the characteristics of something that is likely to be an important cause of sustained economic growth, and what are the things that for which randomized evaluations have been done, there is zero overlap. 
Uh, economic growth is far and away the most important and powerful indicator of success in improving human well-being, and they can contribute nothing to it because economic growth is a social process. It is not an individuated process, which means you can't create a method that randomly assigns one person to one economy and another person to another economy. And <clears throat> the individuated studies just aren't looking at the important issues. Um, so fourth, um, rigorous evidence isn't. <laughs> you generate rigorous evidence from an RCT about exactly and only what you just did. It has zero generalizability. Zero. So it's not that we need to be careful about generalizability. Without the essence of science, if the essence of science were experiment, there would be a Nobel Prize for alchemy. Because <laughs> alchemists were relentless experimentalists. <laughs> what they lacked was a correct theory. <laughs> Science is about a theory. Without a theory, you can't make any claim beyond that the fact is I did this and that happened. So generalizability is impossible um, without a correct articulated theory. And hence the fad of saying we no longer need theory to create identification of the variation in order to do observationally based studies. We can just do experiments wiped out all questions of interest around which you couldn't be uh, randomized and wiped out the use of theory. And so the idea that you can recover and the example of Kartik Muller-Bans is exactly the point. They did four different studies, found four different results, and concocted four different stories about those results. Those stories were no more rigorous than Rudyard Kipling's stories. <laughs> the stories weren't rigorous, and they were explaining the, the same finding in four different places with four different stories. There is zero generalizability, so you can say, I have generated a rigorous piece of evidence that if I do exactly this, in exactly this context, in exactly this way, uh, this is what I will get. But unless you have a theory, you have no way of extrapolating that to a different context. And by the way, there's not even a definition of what context means in that sentence. So for instance, it could well be context is, the current context is, teachers aren't paid for performance. We change, we pay teachers for performance. The context has changed. Context includes time, it's not just place. So even if I have done a randomized experiment in a given country like Nigeria, and even if I have a finding in Nigeria, without a theory, I can't say whether that applies to Nigeria next six months, two years from now, three years from now. So it's perfectly possible that in a recession, lots of businesses are going to fail. I do a business training exercise, an RCT about business training in a recession, it fails. Two minutes. And I do it later, it succeeds. So without even a definition of context, you can't say we can generalize it around context. And without a theory, you can't say anything about what context even means. So it's not as if we can't extrapolate RCTs from place to place. We can't extrapolate RCTs from time to time. And if you can't extrapolate over time, you've got nothing. Um, for fifth, um, in the kinds of things we tend to be interested in, uh, there is huge heterogeneity with respect to the design. So what we call is over a design space. Any given social program has dozens of potential design features with dozens of potential options. So we're in fact got a super high complex, highly complex design space. An RCT drills one or two holes through the design space and says the response surface is exactly this high over this particular element of the design space. 
if that design space is rugged, uh, then you have learned exactly nothing. Because it might well be there was some local project or intervention that was almost alike, except in one dimension, that would have worked massively. So in our research on education, we had a program that produced standard deviation size gains in learning. They modified it to make it slightly cheaper, and they modified it as little as they could and reduced the cost. And it went from having standard deviation positive effects to having negative effects. Same context, same program, same RCT method, zip all. Third, and lastly, um, there are, any public policy has to meet a trinity. It has to be right about its causal claims. It has to be technically correct. It has to be administratively feasible. You have to be able to do it with the organization you have. And it has to be politically supportable, which means I have to generate and sustain political consensus to do it. The positive theory on which the claims are made that RCTs will impact the world is a false positive theory about two of the three elements of the Trinity. It's a mildly better way of finding out what works. It's a terrible and stupid and obviously wrong theory about how politics takes up evidence. And it's completely wrong about how organizations learn about their own impacts. Thank you. Well, I used, to, I used to work with land at the World Bank, so keeping you to 10 minutes, that's a major issue. <laughs> uh, Joe, you are a practitioner. Your job is to do evaluations. I've already explained you where, where you have and where you are now working. Based on your experience, how useful are RCTs? Thanks, Stephen. Um, thank you very much for having me here. So, <clears throat> the story of RCTs is a personal story for me. After I'd done my PhD, I went on to work with Jeff Sachs. And I went on to become his impact evaluation advisor. And amongst one of the first conversations that I had with Jeff was, well, you know, we're looking at the Millennium Villages. Shouldn't we be setting up these randomized control trials? <clears throat> All of you in the room probably know the rest of the story. And, but of course, the epilogue is that we never did set up randomized control trials in the Millennium Villages. Um, Jeff, who I admire profusely and deeply and greatly, uh, but differ uh, from because of his uh, very rabid uh, opposition uh, to RCTs and their use in any context whatsoever. Um, and so we decided to disagree and move on, and we continue to be friends. But that was my first experience. <laughs> That was my first experience, and of course I went through my own, um, my own experience of a you know, complete existential angst and dismay um, while I spent time with him and thought about evidence and thought about just how to prove uh, whether the Millennium Villages, which were getting a lot of money, and which literally represented to me a microcosm of what had happened in the development aid space basically for the 30 years before the 1990s, right? And so here I was trying to understand, well, why, why isn't this infusion of cash or, um, or aid, uh, why can't we prove whether it works or not? And what can tell us whether this is working or not? But, and we had the opportunity to create evidence, but we didn't. Fast forward. Um, three years ago, I got asked to lead the Independent Evaluation Office of the Green Climate Fund. For those who don't know, the Green Climate Fund is the largest climate fund in the world and is uh, currently funded for $10 billion over four years. Right? So there I was, sitting and uh, 
At that, in 2017, fairly lonely in my office, I now have an office of about 30 people. And thinking about, well, what is it that I want in this, um, in this organization so that we can produce trusted evidence to inform policy that can hopefully lead to greater impact? And so here I was trying to marry exactly what Andrew was talking about with what Lant is talking about, which is marry evidence with politics. And it's not the best marriage. Right? <laughs> um, and, and of course, I came from a space I teach um, development evaluation at Columbia. And I came from a space where I, I sort of knew the pitfalls of randomized control trials. But I was really, I was excited by the promise that they held and have, and I continue to be. So, uh, three big things. What do, um, the first thing I do want to clarify is, uh, what I do want to clarify is that RCTs by themselves have come somewhat of a way. They're no longer the black box. Right? They do, when we talk about RCTs now, I implicitly mean theory-based impact evaluations. There, is, there are no good RCTs without good theories. Um, and so at least from, from where I'm sitting, if you're doing an RCT without good theory, please throw it out. There are no good impact evaluations unless you've done good process evaluations. Very, very important. We've set up an entire program um, within GCF, but this is not the only thing that I'm doing. So that's a very important disclaimer. We generate data in many other ways and get to know the context, but also produce the evidence. And we are building some of this technology into the investments that GCF is making so that at some point in time, I should be able to answer the inevitable question, which is going to come to me as head of uh, evaluation. What is the impact that GCF is making, and how do you know? And that's the standard of evidence that I expect every organization, every dollar, to essentially respond to. Right? So we are building these sorts of methodologies with process evaluations, with theory, with theories, in a lot of our programs. But we're doing a few things that are different as well. And this speaks to some of the concerns that Landry raised. One, a lot of the uh, impact evaluations, actually all of them, um, are being co-developed, co-managed, and co-implemented with people on the ground. Yeah? Which means that it becomes, it becomes our task to build that capacity, which is systemic, institutional, and human, on the ground. It also becomes our task to then try and understand the context. But we are aided immeasurably and pricelessly by local, local people who are co-authors on our studies and are working very closely with us to understand what are the key barriers that we're trying to address with a lot of these investments that are coming in? Can we try and at least incrementally deal with them? So on one side, I come from the school of thought where I know the theory of meta-analysis and systematic reviews, and I've looked at corticosteroids and know Cochrane collaboration and know that, well, you needed to do the meta-analysis on corticosteroids to know that they reduce uh, early birth deaths by 50% for pregnant women who give um, birth to early babies. I also come from the school of thought that knows a lot of the evidence that Andrew spoke about, where um, graduation, 
you know, programs have worked in six different sites across six different countries. Um, I also know where programs haven't worked. Community-based development and community-driven development has not worked for community cohesion. But they have worked to then introduce public infrastructure into communities that are otherwise um, um, that are otherwise torn by strife. I also come from the school of thought where I know the evidence around payment for ecosystem services. Millions and millions of dollars are going into payments for ecosystem services, but if you do a meta-analysis of those, you know that the standard uh, effect, the effect sizes on those and the standardized effect sizes on those are extremely small. But you are doing them because the outcomes that you're looking for are much more oriented towards equity and towards other um, and towards other outputs and other impacts rather than just deforestation. So where I'm sitting, we're looking at three things. I'm trying to think about bias in the evaluations that we are producing and in the evidence that we are producing. And to some extent, definitely not completely, to some extent, I am, uh, a lot of the evidence that's coming out is helping me think about how we can take out bias from the evidence. The second, as a decision maker, and I respond to the board of the GCF, as a decision maker, I do have to give them choices. I have to tell the board, well, these are the benefits and these are the costs. And in a lot of cases, these theory-based impact evaluations do help me to think about what are um, critical impact parameters that can help me to at least parameterize models that we can take forward. And it helps me to think about behavior. We have to confess that structure induces behavior. Yeah? So as soon as I'm going into a project or a program or an investment, and I'm speaking to uh, people on the ground, the fact that they have to start to think about, well, what is the dosage and what is the frequency of my intervention makes programs and investments much more tuned to thinking about planning far better. We're living in a complex world. I know complexity theory. I know about heterogeneity and emergence and, um, and network theory. Not all of these questions can't, can be answered with um, theory-based impact evaluation. But if you start to peel away some of the complexity from this space, and if you don't even know whether some of your adaptation and mitigation interventions are working, is it really worth it then to invest so much money into these spaces? And so that's sort of the genesis of this much larger program that we're running, which is learning-oriented, real-time impact assessment work, where we're working with um, programs on the ground and investments on the ground to try to build real-time data and measurement methods that can help us to answer these questions, but we're definitely complementing it with a whole lot of others. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Joe, and the uh, panel was right on time. So now, before going to the floor, and I'm sure you'd, you'd like to contribute as well, I'd like to invite each of our panelists to offer brief reflections or responses to what you've heard uh, in the same order that you spoke before, for no more than five minutes each, starting with you, Andrew. So it is a great pleasure in being able to debate with somebody who is brilliant and thoughtful in the field, even when they are wrong about me and the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and it was in that, in that line that I, I greatly enjoyed uh, Lane's presentation, uh, and I think drew out some of the real tensions in randomised evaluations and the ways in which randomisters need to become better at what they do. Let me focus on first what I disagree with and then what I agree on. I disagree that randomisation is a weapon against the weak. I think it's a weapon against weak programs. Uh, if you uh, believe that you, your goal is to raise incomes and you're rolling out a microcredit program in the specific context and countries of the six in which I talked to you about, about before, uh, and your program is failing to achieve your specified objective, those resources can be better deployed elsewhere. Better deployed, for example, in an area like conditional cash transfers, where a series of randomised trials have suggested that conditional cash transfers can boost uh, household outcomes significantly. Uh, and therefore, you move, you're using two sets of randomised trials to work out your best allocation of resources. As a politician, I hate to say, uh, but not every politician in the world is focused on assisting the weak in the absence of evaluation. Darkness does not bring out wonderful behaviour from the politicians around the world. Shining a spotlight onto what works and what doesn't can help crowd out uh, bad programs of the kinds that end up proliferating in the absence of accountability. Lane points out that other things matter, uh, such as economic growth, and I certainly agree that China's economic growth has uh, moved hundreds of millions out of poverty over the course of my lifetime. But I think that's probably also true with the area of health. Uh, whether how much I uh, exercise, whether I smoke, what I eat, all of that has an enormous impact on my health. But if I'm taking a pill, I'd still like it to have been tested in a double-blind randomised trial. Uh, and indeed, if you want public subsidies for a drug in an advanced country, you've almost always got to put it through that lens. Simply because there is something else affecting my health doesn't tell me that whether or not to apply an additional treatment uh, whether that's a cancer treatment, a drug, uh, some form of surgery, shouldn't be rigorously evaluated. And then we come to the question of generalisability. Uh, Lamp made two contradictory claims. Firstly, he told you that uh, the, malaria, the malaria bed net studies were the only persuasive result. And then he told you that there was zero generalisability from randomised trials. Those two statements can't be correct. It must either be the case that Lamb believes we can learn nothing from the malaria randomised trials, uh, or he must, must believe uh, that you can generalise in some contexts. And I think he's using, and he's welcome to push back on this, I think he's using a, a mite of exaggeration in order to make the case here. <laughs> that we need to think about the issue of generalisability. We need to be careful about context. But if we're in a world in which nothing generalises, that doesn't just kill RCTs. That kills your differences in different studies. That kills your matching estimator studies. That kills your before-after studies. And that kills your qualitative research. If nothing generalises, then no evaluation is, is worthwhile, randomised or not. And I don't think that's the world that we're in. I do believe that we need to have uh, appropriate pre-specification, which gives you a better link to theory. And I totally agree with Joe's comment about the importance of not testing black box interventions. Uh, Chris Blackman says that over the course of his career, he's been much less, become much less interested in the question, does this program work? And more interested in the, program, in the question of how does the world work? Let me finish with a final example. 
Uh, and Blake McCoskey set up a company called Tom's Shoes after visiting Argentina and seeing shoeless kids. The idea was that for every pair of shoes someone in an advanced country purchased, a free pair of shoes would be given to someone in a poor country. After being going for a decade, he agreed to randomise across a group of Colombian villages. The randomisation, the evaluation came back showing that the shoes were no more likely to uh, improve the well-being of children, if they didn't impact their health, their chances of going to school. They were getting loafers and they were typically replacing previous shoes. And rather than responding to that randomised study by trying to shut it down or saying that it didn't generalise elsewhere, Blake McCoskey adapted, took the study and set about trying to change the program. So now they're looking at handing out shoes conditional on school attendance handing out sneakers rather than loafers, and recognising that their program can be adapted. Uh, so I agree with, uh, with Lamb. Evaluation is hard, theory is important, other stuff matters, but we still need to randomise. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew Lamb. Your five minutes starts now. OK. Um... So this is what's just uh, the idea that development is about rich people giving poor people shoes, and that therefore we need to evaluate that. That's the problem. <laughs> development is about societies and countries becoming productive, becoming developing responsive states, developing organizations in the state that are capable of doing uh, what <laughs> what governments need to do and developing societies that treat each other equally. It's, imagine going to the pioneers, the first, the first Nehru and the other leaders of the newly independent states who were anxious for their countries to develop and say, you know, we have a technique where if some rich idiot philanthropist wants to give away shoes, we can prove he's wrong. <laughs> Like, it's just insulting to the endeavor of development and the aspirations of the world's people that has been reduced to discussions like this. That we would even discuss giving away shoes as a development intervention is just, it's just insulting. Second, um, uh, I have a presentation which I encourage you all to look. It's entitled, The RCT, Beat, the RCT Debate is Over. I won, they lost. Uh, roughly what is being said here is that that's true. The original set of claims around RCTs were about using RCTs as impact evaluations. And the words were, and what the founders of the movement claimed, is that we're going to use randomized control tiles as a technique embedded in independent impact evaluations. And by embedding RCT techniques into independent impact evaluations, we will produce better development outcomes. That was the set of claims that were made. Roughly, what is being described is what I was proposing, which was an embedded learning technique that we should help organizations learn. So if you listen to the really smart and sophisticated learning strategy Dr. Puri is proposing for her organization, it has nothing to do with the original claims about RCTs and impact evaluation. It's not independent. It's co-managed, co-designed, co. It's co-co-co, right? Which is exactly right, but it's not independent. 
It's process learning, it's evaluating in real time, it's real time learning, that's not impact evaluation. So again, generation RCT 1.0 was, uh, we're going to do independent impact evaluation using RCTs as a method and the knowledge generated in that way is gonna be helpful in improving development outcomes. No one believes any part of that anymore, including the advocates of RCTs. So in some sense, the RCT debate is over and what I was saying at the time, as I have another paper that you should read, it's called, all, It's All About Me. <laughs> which my wife points out is the only honest title of every academic's paper. <laughs> but what we meant by me was M Little Biggie, which was organizations in order to learn to be effective at what they need to be effective at, need to adopt a learning attitude that involves monitoring, creating the data about outcomes, that involves experiential learning, which involves real-time feedback about what works and how we modify things on the go, and involves some degree of impact evaluation. So what is now fashionable and being sold as the RCT revolution is in fact, it's all about me. It's about a learning strategy for organizations that 10 years ahead of when the RCT people were gaining fame, we were telling them that what they were doing wasn't gonna work and that they should adopt a more integrated learning strategy and they were completely resistant because they were geniuses, they knew what they were doing, they had never done any development projects, they had never worked on development but they knew everything and that this new technique was gonna be a revolution and change and now they have adopted exactly what everyone with development experience was telling them was true and are still claiming that it's innovative and new and due to them. It's not. It's exactly what everybody has been trying to promote for a long time and the RCT innovation is a tiny little embedded part in a much larger picture. Thank you. Well, Andy, it was all about you, but now it's all about Joe. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm really flattered that now I'm on Andrew's side as well as on Lance's side. <laughs> um, so, a couple of things. Um, impact evaluations have never been about evaluating long-term impact. This is the first thing that I tell my students as well. I mean, there's definitely the myth around, oh, well, we're going to be able to look at um, impacts 20 or 30 years. I think where um, we have innovated, um, and Lance, um, you're right there, is that we have embedded randomization, though, in products. That's important. But the randomization is definitely the core of it, because we do think that that's an important part of generating good quality um, and credible, as well as measurable, idea of what the projects are doing on the ground. The measurability is really key. And I'm a data geek, so I keep thinking about this all the time. Okay. But important, the second important thing is that these are, I'm the head of the independent evaluation office. So the independence part <laughs> is very important to me. Okay. Um, so don't take that away. Um, You've taken it away. What no, is the no, co, co, co? So Who are you independent co, of? Co, co with local researchers. Like. Okay. So co with local researchers. But then you're not independent of what you're evaluating. Well, we are independent of what we are evaluating, but we are, uh, we are also independent of the secretariat that's putting in money. But we, are not, <laughs> but we are definitely not independent of local researchers. Why would we be? 
I mean, we definitely want local researchers to come in and talk to us and work with us in terms of understanding local constraints and contexts and bottlenecks, as well as, also, uh, as well as teaching us. So we can teach some about randomization, but they can teach us about um, all of the constraints that they deal with and the criticality of some of those. And that's where, so definitely, impact evaluations or RCTs are not designed for the entire theory of change of an investment. That's just virtually impossible. But identifying what those critical bottlenecks are in this long theory of change, where everything else would have process and process evaluation sort of feeding um, the overall understanding of what's working. But for the critical bottlenecks, we then design impact evaluations or theory-based randomized control trials. Yeah, so that's sort of the long way. I, I think they're important also to consider examples of where these things have made us understand where multilateral agencies have um, used some of this evidence uh, to also guide their own strategies. And this has educated me a lot. I was in the session at the World Humanitarian Summit where um, the head of um, WFP at the time, Joseph Chiron, picked up the systematic review on, um, what, um, on um, comparing in-kind transfers with cash transfers with um, food transfers to then understand this still, well, can we say something about what strategies humanitarian organizations should use? And she cited the systematic review to then say, look, we'd like to put in more than 25% of our budget, of our programming budget, into areas, um, into, um, into cash. Because we know that in many cases these work, and of course this is not a blanket statement. But it is important for decision makers and it is important for strategy choices. IFAD did something similar. They built in not just randomized control trials, but also quasi-experimental methods into understanding whether their programs were working and whether they were reaching the targets of 80 million people out of poverty or not. They had to give numbers to their boards. And they could say something like, well, we were successful in taking out 44,930,000 people out of poverty by 5 to 10%. These things are important, but they're not the only thing. We have to build in the other methods, the other uh, the measurement systems that I'm a big fan of. So the measurement systems with the ME line, absolutely. Uh, and they don't, they don't stand alone. So marry ME with theory and RCTs. Thanks. Another attractive feature of this format, which is now I'm trying to sell to you, is that there's plenty of time now for what is participation. I know this is a subject on which many people have strong views, <laughs> and I look forward to hearing them. So please introduce yourself, keep your uh, comment short, or question, preferably, and uh, we'll, we might take a few and then go back to the panel. So, yeah, I'm just looking at more hands. Okay, we'll give Joe back. There's no microphone, so do speak loudly, because uh, we are recording. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, Gladly. Um, I don't know where to begin, but uh, the randomization, why are we obsessed with randomization? What on earth do we think this is going to bring? And, and it's not even being done properly. Right? It's not actually randomized. It's, it's not double blind. It's not even, it's not even single blind. It's not even, it's, it's, it's not actually used. 
One point is enough. Oh. <laughs> uh, Patrick. Um, my, 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 my point is, uh, I don't mind random, but I do mind controls. It, a, Australia has a national statement on ethical research, and one aspect of that is you have to apply the treatment to the control group. That makes it very expensive. Second, there's no one of perception because you cannot tell the people before the interview what the game is about because then you lead to advice. So you have to cover that. Secondly, why not just ask people what changes have happened over the last X number of years, which is what I tend to do. <laughs> people tend to be able to give you a pretty good analysis of what's changed for their lives over okay. the last whatever period. We've got and lots of participants. Terence, next. And then we'll go back to the panel. Professor Pritchett, you said that development is a large-scale societal process on broad-based change, and randomised controlled trials contribute very little to this, and so ergo-randomised controlled trials are more or less worthless. Let's try that statement again by saying, well, this is a societal project process of large-scale change. Economists have contributed very little to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've made some useful observations after the fact, helpful around the margins, but can't something do a little bit and not everything and still be very useful? All right, so we'll go back to the panel. I'd also ask the panelists to keep their responses short, and um, but a bit of freedom. Who wants to go first? It's, um... Let me give an example, which. Uh... Let me give an example which uh, I think addresses both the first two questions from Natalie and Patrick. Uh, in uh, 1978, a documentary came out called Scared Straight. Uh, it was the idea that if uh, kids were uh, becoming delinquents, that you could put them in jail for a day, expose them to how bad prison was, uh, and make them send them on the straight and narrow. Uh, Academy Award documentary turned into actual programs, life imitated art, uh, and before after studies suggested that it was a raging success. Uh, then a series of US states began to do randomised trials, and it turned out that Scared Straight uh, wasn't just useless, it was actually actively harmful. Uh, that many of the young people thought jail was a whole lot worse before than after, uh, and those who went through the Scared Straight program were more likely to do harm. Can you ask people about it? No. The proponents thought it worked, and some of, the, some of, the, some of those in the program thought it worked. You needed a credible counterfactual. Uh, yes, you can't always uh, blind on these things, uh, but the randomised trials of Scared Straight helped to shut down a program uh, that wasn't just failing to help, it was actually doing harm. So, um, Natalie, your first question. Yeah, there's no such thing as little randomised or, or partially randomised. You either randomise or you don't. Um, and anything less than completely well randomized, and I can give you horrif horrifying experiences with where, um, um, where on the ground you partly randomized, it, so it's not entirely bad at that. So, um, but to the question of um, ethics of it, so I, I think the one principle that I hold very dear every time we think about theory-based impact evaluations is clinical equipoise. You have to be really unsure that the program isn't working um, when you go down to the ground and decide to fit, plan out and implement um, randomized control trials, theory-based. Um, because anything less than that would definitely be unethical. 
And then, of course, um, you could use A versus B, sorts of the trial methodologies, where it's not as if you're denying um, parts of or subpopulations, but the, the fact of development is that not everyone's going to get everything at the same time, um, every time. And so it's sort of using that to really get to also understand as a co-benefit whether the program's working. And so in many cases, we um, work with program managers, understanding their constraints in terms of logistics and implementability, to then think about how to plan out the randomized control trial. Um, yeah, why couldn't we just ask people? Uh, so Schiller um, actually just came out with a wonderful book on the power of narratives. But it's clear that, um, people, that social desirability bias plays out into everything, uh, including, including how we voice our opinions and, about what, and the way we express ourselves. So um, well, you've got to use other methods as well. And we're just going to stop there. Yeah. So, uh... First, just to get the facts uh, on the table, if one looks at the cross-national correlation between headcount poverty rates, which is a common metric of poverty, and median income in those same in countries, the correlation is 0.99. There is essentially no variation in poverty outcomes that is independent, that isn't associated with the income of the median person. So when we talk about what, com what relative components one should place on economic growth versus other elements of poverty reduction, it's all growth. It's not some growth. It isn't like if you say there's gin and tonic, it's all the gin that makes you drunk. The tonic plays no role. So, uh, so first of all, just factually, so far, in the observed variation across the countries, it's all growth. And if you look at changes in poverty over time, you have similarly just extraordinarily high correlations. And what is just truly odd about the RCT as being brought in as being integral to poverty reduction is that we had many countries that essentially eliminated extreme poverty right in front of our eyes through rapid economic growth. And so one would think if one were examining how could I effectively eliminate poverty, you would say, geez, what did Vietnam do? They eliminated poverty. What did China do? They eliminated poverty. What did Indonesia do from 1966 to 1996? They reduced poverty from 75% to 11%. But that's not the evidence-based approach that the evidence-based advocates proposed. They said, let's look at poverty programs, which have no evidence of playing any role in poverty reduction, because we have a tool that we can obsess about and produce academic papers that will allow us to produce papers. And that is the motivation for RCTs, was the production of papers. Um, second, uh, if you look at India, uh, in 1991, India had a critical set of policy decisions to make. Uh, because of a large extended economic debate that had preceded the 1991 period, they made a certain set of decisions. If one calculates 
the additional NPV of the GDP in India that exists today versus what would have happened on the business as usual path, the incremental value of that is $2 trillion. Let's say economists didn't account for that. Economists really, in spite of the fact that it was an economic decision made on the basis of discussions of economic evidence, let's suppose economists only played 50% of a role in making a good decision versus a bad decision that led to these growth outcomes. That's only a trillion dollars in gains. Again, the idea that economic ideas don't matter and don't matter a ton is completely, totally false. We have the evidence about the episodic nature of growth, and we can often identify in those episodes the precise discussions that were had and the decisions that were taken, influenced by particular economic ideas. And the shift in those economic ideas often accounts for rapid economic growth and massive poverty reduction. So the idea that ideas don't matter and that evidence about those ideas uh, don't matter about growth, I just don't regard it at all plausible. I've seen too many instances in which people made good decisions and bad decisions based on right and wrong ideas about economics. So, All right, we're just warming up here. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try and take the questions in the order in which I see, saw them. So there's one more here, and then we're going to go to the other side. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks very much. This is Stephen Lee from Oxford. I had a question about the, uh, the UN uh, evaluation that you uh, mentioned in your introduction, which is by David McKenzie, right? Who I think knows what he's doing. And it had lots of effects. And I think you mentioned that it was really good for jobs growth, which sounds a lot like employment growth, which sounds like a, a macro uh, effect, which is really difficult to show in an RCT. So I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm understanding that right, whether David McKenzie actually says that it does do that on the basis of the, uh, of the RCT. And in fact, how we did that, did do that. OK, I think I saw this. Yes, please. Um, my name is Kara. I work with Catalpa International. And I'm an education economist by training, whatever that means, mm -hmm. um, for this discussion. Um, but one of my favorite concepts is the idea of false uniqueness bias, where people think the outcomes don't apply to them. They think they're unique. And I've seen this a lot. And so I wonder how that applies both to RCTs and other kinds of research in terms of impact, of impact evaluation on qualitative research. If people don't think the research applies to them, how do we convince them to change their behavior and decisions? OK, we do need a bit of an honesty system. Is there someone else over here I saw before? <laughs> yeah, and we also need some gender balance. So everybody is in the front. Hi. Um, my question was that um, like, students want to do something and so one thing they would want to do something like this. So, so whether they should think about it or just just give it up you know, on their head. And secondly, randomization is that's the main thing. But I mean, I thought that our city is like um, there are competing theories, many theories. And you are testing which one is right. So thinking that it is, there is no theory, or I, I think it might be wrong. By the way, I'm not asking you that. So just playing the with that. OK, I think there's quite a lot on the table there for our panel. So I will turn back to the panel. Uh, so I don't have the David McKenzie results in front of me, but my guess is that uh, the, your critique that perhaps he's identified a partial equilibrium uh, result is, is there. You'd want to know what the uh, level of 
uh, unemployment was in the uh, in the society, and, and ideally, sorry, I'm feedback. Uh, ideally, uh, I suspect you would uh, you'd want a uh, quasi-experimental. Uh, uh, ideally, you'd want a quasi-experimental study uh, looking alongside a randomised trial, or else something of sufficient scale. So I was thinking as you're asking me questions, Stephen, about Carthagena-Lurin's study in uh, the biometric uh, rollout in India and Andhra Pradesh. He's got 19 million people in his randomised trial, so he's able to uh, look not only at the partial equilibrium but the general equilibrium effects. Uh, if you're able to do it at that, at that scale, you can, you can get exactly the problem you're concerned about. Uh, but of course, that's a, that's a problem that, that could, occur, could occur elsewhere. Um, Carol, when you're asking a question about uh, uniqueness, I was thinking about that lovely psychological survey which says, uh, how different are you from other people? And everyone says, well, very different. How different are other people from you? Well, not very at all. So we do need to, to recognise that uh, in the medical area, for example, um, there are, uh, a, a, a high degree of extrapolation from different populations in looking at drugs. Uh, we want to understand how uh, different uh, bodies might respond. If you've only had a drug uh, rolled out in the European subpopulation, uh, you might want to extrapolate that to an Asian or an African subpopulation. Uh, one kidney researcher I spoke to while I was writing Red Nesters said that he now doesn't do single country trials any longer. He only does multi-country trials because he wants to be sure that he's got uh, a broad, spe broad spectrum there uh, and then he's able to, uh, to extrapolate. And the final question, should students do ICTs? I'm fascinated on Lance's view on this, but my view is wherever you land on who's right on the panel, you should probably do an RCT. Uh, if you want to destroy them, you want to destroy them from within, you want to understand what's going on. Uh, if you want to support them, then you want to get going on this, uh, on this pathway. Uh, and if you're just agnostic, um, there's uh, enough randomised trials going on in development economics that you don't want it to be a blank space in your under in understanding. Uh, so I think uh, the, the optimal number of ran randomised trials for a career is neither 100% or 0%. Good answer. <laughs> now, when we mix it up and go to you now, then. Go to Joe. Uh, no one really asked me anything. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, good. Uh, I'll, Joe, I'll wait. No, no. It will come to you later then. Joe? No, I, I don't think I want no? to add anything. All right. Andrew did a good answer. All right. We've got another round. Uh, there's this gentleman in the blue and then Chris. Yeah. And then the other Chris. Right. No, not you. Sorry. Fine. You'll have to wait. Days, no big exaggerated, 
Okay. Um, <laughs> at the end, this kind of senior guy took me one side and said, Chris, that was fascinating. But frankly, I don't give a what method you use as long as the minister doesn't look like an idiot. <laughs> and I guess what well, I'm really interested in this question then on the politics of how all this plays out, because it, we seem to suggest that these methods don't have a political, uh, they're inherently political, they're funded politically. The uptake is often grim pack, not impact, as their findings are misused. So, what would a governance system around evidence look like that actually dealt with that policy? Okay. So we're not going to roll on gender balance. Yes, please. Emily, she has come in and she has to be policy in a second. I just find these comments quite interesting because from a researcher's perspective, we're often not sitting on a $4 billion fund. Ten. 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 <laughs> system, and I, I think the other two questions are related, so I'm just going to talk about that. One of the, one of the first few things that um, I realized when I started working at Columbia is naming things matter. How you name things is basically going to make a difference between whether something's accepted or not accepted. So fast forward um, to um, when I was speaking to the GCF board about impact valuations. Every time in my work plan, and this is when my office was um, quite nascent, I put in impact evaluations, um, I'd get um, a response saying, well, impact evaluations just come back after 20 years. We're not interested right now. We've got other priorities. It then became important to also communicate to the board that impact evaluations or randomized control trials with the theory-based, which also build in process and other data and measurement systems, are essentially the thing that we are talking about because you've got to set up those measurement systems from the beginning. So we started to call them L-O-R-T-A instead of impact evaluations or RTTs, L-Learning-Oriented Real-Time Impact Assessments. <laughs> So it's all about me. Yeah. And so learning-oriented real-time impact assessments is now this program, which has RCTs embedded in them, which are led by my office, but which work essentially on the investments that GCF is making to then understand what is the impact, how much, would it have happened otherwise, and could we have done this better? And those three or four questions are really important for the board. They want to answer all of those questions. They just didn't want impact evaluations to be built at the beginning. So we sort of, um, so Christianing stuff becomes really important. I was at, um, speaking to the government of India um, just last week, 
And um, the Ministry of Planning there is thinking about, well, how should we try and tell the government um, that some of the programs are not working? So, and this goes back to uh, trying to answer, you know, how can you pitch our cities or even good measurements if you're going to come out with negative results? I, I think the other learning that we've done here is you've got to let the decision makers own the results. So for everything, so in India, when I was at 3IE, and also with governments across Africa, we worked really closely with governments to let them know that they could come out and announce that they had commissioned the impact evaluation because they wanted to learn. And learning is really a very important consequence and impact of our cities and uh, impact evaluations, which I think people tend to undervalue. My closing statement here is that, um, you know, Ghost Map, how many of you have read it? The book? Yeah. I mean, there's, the, there's this idea of experimentist crisis. You have complex spaces with networks and externalities and heterogeneity. What this experimentist crisis is helping you do is just simplify one, one of those pathways. It's not giving you the complete answer, but it's giving you some answer. Thank you. So uh, let me get uh, to the governance of evidence, for instance. Uh, part of my frustration, uh, which might be obvious, with the RCT revolution or FAD is that it's just wasted a ton of time. Like, and these guys are super genius, these guys and gals, super geniuses. So it's not trivial that they were wasting their time. Um, so in 1999, uh, I wrote a paper called What Education Production Functions Really Show that looked at the literature. Uh, if, in fact, you were optimizing your allocation of inputs across all inputs, the marginal product per dollar in terms of your gain per dollar of input should be equalized. That's just a simple microeconomic implication of maximization. Uh, we wrote a paper in which we reviewed the existing literature, some of which was quasi-experimental, but a lot of which was observational, but still tried to cope with causality issues. And we found that inputs uh, that directly involve teacher welfare tended to be have a marginal product per dollar that was a hundredth or a thousandth as large as inputs that didn't affect teacher welfare. So kind of a simple political theory of that would be teachers lobby and books don't lobby very well, or desks don't lobby as well. And hence, they're not optimizing their expenditures across known kind of output functions because the expenditures are determined politically. And this, so our positive theory was people are not in fact optimizing relative to known knowledge about the relative efficacy in promoting learning of a variety of approaches because they're deeply embedded in a politics that favors certain things over other things, okay? What's the positive theory of change of the politics of RCTs? It's that there's some policymaker sitting out there who is not, in fact, allocating education expenditures in a way that's maximizing learning because they don't know the true impact coefficients in a kind of simple, explainable way from an RCT. That's just complete, total, obvious horseshit. <laughs> but if you want to go from the causal chain from the RCT to the action, it goes through politics. Unless you have a realistic 
theory of politics, you don't have a theory of change of impact of RCTs. And in this case, we had really quite, I think, powerful evidence that the existing policymakers making expenditure decisions weren't doing anything like the optimal allocation of expenditures in a way that was wildly inconsistent with the conjecture that they were even trying to do so based on the knowledge they had. So again, the idea that the last 20 years, what have the last 20 years done? They've done a bunch of education production function estimates, which are, by the way, are worse than observational estimates for ways I can't go into because it's a little too technical. But they've done a bunch of here, well, let's evaluate this here, and let's evaluate that there, and let's evaluate there. And they've added some net new knowledge about the education production function. But we already knew they weren't optimizing with respect to the education production function in ways that were known. And mostly the results have reproduced exactly what we knew from the non-experimental literature. So 20 years, completely wasted. We should have been working on the politics of education and how we get politicians to care about learning outcomes in a ways that they're actually responsive to. Instead, people published papers. They got famous for doing a cute little experiment here, a cute little experiment there. And nothing happened on learning. Andrew. <coughs> So as a politician, <laughs> I, uh, I share Lance's frustration about uh, evidence not being taken up. Uh, and uh, to the question as to what share of government decisions are evidence-based, all of them have some notional evidence base, but often we just don't know. Uh, so if you look at uh, the area of cancer, for example, you take the drugs that look promising coming out of the lab, you ask the question, how many of those drugs pass stage one, two, three randomised trials and make it to market? The answer is one in 10. You look at the brilliant ideas that people at Google are coming up with that pass through their randomised trials, uh, they say one in five pass through. Uh, and you look at uh, some of the uh, analyses that have been done on social programs, suggesting that somewhere around a quarter of the programs which sounded promising actually turn out to work in practice. It's not that these people are stupid or nefarious, uh, it's that we're dealing with social problems that are equally as hard as battling cancer. Uh, so we want to be scientific and critical about the programs that we have, but then also recognise, as, as uh, the, uh, my two co-panelists have pointed out, that the implementation is really difficult. But sometimes the randomised trials can help you with implementation. 1999, Australia is the heroin, uh, leading heroin consumer in the world, uh, and there is a huge challenge as to how to deal with uh, drug offenders. So New South Wales sets up drug courts and does a randomised trial, which effectively shows that going through a drug court and having uh, your addiction dealt with uh, is significantly better for the community as well as the offender than the traditional criminal justice process. Uh, largely because it's a randomised trial, it's able to propel the rollout of drug courts, not just through New South Wales, but through other parts of Australia. Uh, in Canada, a, a study on super utilisers uh, of the healthcare system, think a uh, homeless person who's repeatedly dropping into the emergency room, uh, had uh, suggested, based on before and after studies, uh, that providing intensive support to super utilisers of healthcare uh, would significantly reduce overall healthcare costs. They've just this year come out with a randomised trial, uh, which showed that actually the program doesn't seem to have any impact. And what was going on is what Labor economists called Ashenfelder's dip, uh, that people were coming in at the moment at which their usage was peaking uh, and the usage would have fallen off otherwise. So uh, the political process is incredibly messy and I would love to work with all of you in terms of improving that process. Uh, but let's also improve the evidence base, otherwise we'll have the, uh, the problem that decisions are made by hippos. 
uh, the highest paid person's opinion. Uh, and that is not necessarily better than making our evidence. All right, can I, now can we, I point no, out, though? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, come no, on. No, please, because we're running out of time. You'll get another chance to speak. Okay, but I'm directly responding to Andrew. Yeah, but there are lots of people who are Okay. So we uh, are running out of time, so I'm going to sacrifice the closing statement. So your responses to these questions, that will be your closing statement. We've got ten minutes, so I'll take three questions. Not everyone's going to get a chance to speak, but those people I've seen, put their hands on this, and Chris is one of them. So very briefly. So my question is, what do you want policymakers to do? Because for as long as policymakers are making decisions that are more micro about, say, the impact of a program, and for as long as they want to gather quantitative evidence about whether a program is working or not, why shouldn't they be considering randomised control trials as one type of evaluation methodology? Right, there's another question <laughs> in, over there. Um, yes, yeah, yes. Just a bit more information about the um, real-time assessment and what is real-time about it. <laughs> and, right. Sure. Um, Professor Pritchett, then, um, you're also the director of the RISE program, right? Um, okay. And I'm mindful that there's some small share of RISE program in education. No? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, there's, I... some, there's some experiments within that broad portfolio of research. Um, so I'm just going to assume for a moment that some small share of RCTs is okay, right? Um, and is very focused on the Pacific at the moment. And you can count the number of experimental evaluations and quasi-experimental evaluations probably on your hands. Ones that are finished, maybe on one hand. That's the situation that we're kind of in in terms of evidence in the region. So from your experience, both in your education research and also to Joe and Andrew, Let's assume a non-zero number is what we kind of need to do. Where would you be focusing and where do you think the right places to apply these methods would be moving forward if you were, say, a defender, or would you just say, no, go do something else? Thoughts? All right, well, I might let Lan go first and then move down the table. And, and we'll, okay. We'll finish off. So we've got seven minutes. Uh, is this including... This is closing statements. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Closing so... So, first, um, I want to say what I was going to say, which is, Andrew tells these stories about doing an impact evaluation, and then has a sentence like, largely because it was an RCT, the policy changed. That is wild-ass speculation. So, the, you know, if you were making that claim about program impact, you would jump all over yourself, saying, no, 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 you can't make that claim about program impact because you didn't do an RCT. But when I want to make a claim that RCTs affect outcomes, I say, largely because it was an RCT, the policy adoption happened. Like, zero evidence for that claim. It's like, maybe that's your narrative, but that's no more persuasive than my narrative about influencing economic policy in India without an RCT. So, so embedded in all of this is there is zero evidence in favor of RCTs as evidence, of the type that they would accept as evidence for any other program. <laughs> So they have never generated, you know, if, if, if the same advocacy claims were being made about devoting money to any other program as the advocacy claims are made about devoting money to RCTs, the people who are advocates of RCTs would demand an RCT of evidence and rigorous evidence, and they don't about themselves. Like every advocate, like every faith-based advocate, they have faith in what they do, they advocate based on their faith, and they expect other people to just accept what they're doing on the basis of faith. So. Uh, uh, 
Of course, any research program has RCTs because there are some things you can learn about the RCT from doing an RCT. It's like I'm not against RCTs. My claim is the claims about the impact on development of RCTs have been that RCTs are a revolution or RCTs are a huge innovation and that RCTs on the scope of things that are important in development are an eight or a six. And my claim is on the scope of things that are important for development, they're a 0.5. I'm not saying there is zero. No one believes that you should never do a randomized control trial. It's just the idea that this is some revolutionary new thing that's going to radically change is just belied by the facts that it's been around for 50 years. It's been used for 50 years. It has modest effects in some instances. Sometimes it's marginally more persuasive than other kinds of evidence. But it's, by and large, it's, you know, RCTs are really good for what they're good at. The problem is they're good for nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> as much as anybody does about that they're good for anything. Well, by the way, the only randomized evidence about the impact of randomized evidence shows that it doesn't have any impact. They do have one randomized study of the adoption of a randomized study, and in the randomized study of the adoption of the randomized study, it failed. So the idea of... But you can't generalize. Of course you can't generalize, but then once we're there, we're there. Boom. Like RCTs are done, because without the generalization claims... No, without the generalization claims, you can't get to cost-effectiveness. You can't say it's cost-effective to do RCTs unless you have a way of saying what their generalizability is. Once you concede generalizability, the game's over. But, but sure. that, that argument applies to just about every other method as Absolutely well. it does, right. which so is why you shouldn't do expensive stuff. You should do stuff that's built into Lorta. Lorta, I love that. It's like a, I'll change okay, from so being I'm about me to being about Lorta. Lorta. <laughs> so here's the big challenge, right? The challenge is that we are talking about eminence-based decision-making versus evidence-based decision-making, right? Um, this, is what Andrew, this is how Andrew characterized it. So, <coughs> let the big hippos make the decision. But that's eminence-based. And you want to move to some kind of evidence-based decision-making. And so given that challenge, what should you do? And clearly, I, I think we're not, at least from where I'm sitting, I think I'm witnessing, this is different from what, how Lant would like to characterize it, I'm witnessing a scientific revolution. Thomas Kuhn, in 1962, talked about the nature of scientific revolutions. And he talked about how anomalies have to accumulate. One anomaly, two anomalies are not going to bring about a great upheaval in the way we think or behave or practice. It's going to be a, a critical mass of anomalies that you have to get before you reach your tipping point. And I think that RCTs are contributing to us you know, reaching that tipping point. They're not the only thing, but they're contributing. And they're contributing because they're making us far more aware of measurement, about understanding what works and what doesn't, and why. And in that entire, in that transformation, in that, um, um, in that, in that structural change or paradigm shift, I think we're recognizing that RCTs are also helping us understand as an unintended consequence um, 
um, wh why things work or why things don't work. This was not, I think, at the beginning um, of this journey, an expected consequence of RCTs. This is the RCT 2.0 revolution. And I think embedding real-time data, so the real-time part of what we are doing is recognizing that you've got to know implementation fidelity. You've got to know what your dosage is and what your frequency is if you want to understand why something's <laughs> working or why something's not working, which is what you get from your average treatment effects. What's, how much is it working? But why it's working is basically why we are building in real-time data and real-time um, measurement systems into the investments that we are working with. That's the solution to the big challenge that we've done. Thank you. So just as Lamp doesn't think we should do zero randomized trials, I also don't think we should have zero uh, use of theory. Uh, when you look at uh, the way in which programs are used in political debates, uh, it is striking to see that simpler evaluation techniques are far more powerful than compl complicated ones. Now, I admit that I'm uh, making that statement based on before-after research and pure theory, uh, and I have actually attempted to do an RCT of RCTs. Uh, when I launched my book among my parliamentary colleagues, I took a list of the RSVPs and randomly assigned a set of my parliamentary <laughs> colleagues uh, a copy of my book, uh, and then uh, looked later to see how many of them mentioned randomised trials in Parliament. Uh, unfortunately, we're running close on time, so I can't <laughs> have a chance to talk about the results. Uh, but, uh, but you're right, Blake. we need to, to raise evidence of, uh, of, of the way in which evidence is, uh, is used, because that's a critical issue, and so many of you in the room are working on it. What would I do if I was working in DFAT? I would tie randomised trials to theories, try and learn as much as possible uh, about the uh, uh, overall objectives, what the government is trying to do in the region, uh, the deep theories of poverty uh, and of economic growth tiny randomised trials to big questions, not to little ones. But also be opportunistic. So if a program is rolling out across two years, why not randomise who gets it in year one and year two? If you've got a waitlist, why not randomise off that waitlist? If you've got access to administrative data, use that to bring down the cost. Uh, the Arnold Foundation in the United States now funds a whole spate of randomised trials uh, that cost less than $200,000. We have to break away from the idea that randomised trials have to take decades uh, and cost squillions. Um, thank you all for being part of a, a really interesting conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.